I think there's only one thing I've ever worked on which has been as well-beloved and well-trod by other analysts as this, and that would be A New Hope. Little nervous. <laughs> Little nervous. Gonna be honest. As always, I like to kind of dig into a little bit of the behind-the-scenes material, but the problem is there's just so much of it. There is so much behind-the-scenes material for TOS. I literally just have this book in my lap ready to go to reference because... I mean, I've already read through this, obviously, but just to give you an idea... Hang on, give me, let me show you this. Let me show you this. So, there we go. This may not look like a lot, but these 24 pages here of this size of a book... That is all behind-the-scenes material just for TOS as a series, never mind individual episodes or concepts or shows or whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> but I do want to cover at least some of it because, well, because I'm kind of a television geek and because I find the whole thing historically fascinating. So please forgive me as I cover ground that anybody who's watching this has probably already heard before. Back in the 60s and 50s and 70s, the, the so-called golden age of television... Uh, there was a problem, and that problem was the exact same problem we have nowadays. Most people, with regards to the what I call the money people, a.k.a. the people who actually make decisions when it comes to large-scale corporations, they wanted to play things safe. And I'm sure that sounds familiar to you if you've ever looked into any book, movie, game, or show, or play, or music, ever. Playing it safe is pretty much the normal op operating procedure, especially when it comes to investors, because they want a return on investment. They don't want a risk. Now, that kind of does make sense from a financial perspective, but even from a financial perspective, what you are doing if you maintain such a thing is you are ensuring a form of stagnation, because at some point or another, people are going to get tired of it. And the longer it goes on, the more groups of people will eventually hit their tolerance limit and get tired of it, and the figures will start to drop, and safe will stop becoming safe. And anybody who's followed fiction for the last 30-plus years can probably tell you that these kind of come and go in waves. You know, ah, I'm so, I'm so into this. No, it's dying out, it's dying out, it's dying out. Hey, nobody's done this in a while. Now that it's not safe and it's a super risk, someone takes a risk, and that's amazing, and then everyone copies it, and it just kind of goes around in circles. Back in the day, in TV, there were three major types of shows. You had uh, westerns, you had cop shows, cop dramas, and you had humor, you know, comedy shows. Those were safe. Anybody who's watching this who is even remotely familiar with Star Trek can probably name at least one show of the type of things I just mentioned that most of the people involved in Star Trek actually had worked on prior to working on Star Trek. Now, that's the first thing I want to draw your attention to that interests me from a historical perspective. Very few, very, very few of the people who worked on Star Trek were noobs. They were not new. They were not fresh. They were well-experienced people who had already been a part of the television cycle several times, either as writers or actors or producers or directors or whatever. We actually had a talented crew going into TOS, and that's the point one on the luck meter. I'm going to be making this point throughout this video, but my overall point is that TOS and Star Trek as a whole got really, really lucky. And if I might be so bold, so did we, because we got Star Trek out of it. So, the first 
In my opinion, the first real crack in that safety was by Rod Serling. Now, Rod Serling, he wanted to do tales that I'm sure Huthor would enjoy because it was all about trying to get across a message or an idea. And network executives and television in general was very, very restrictive on that. No, 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 no. There was actually a huge amount of restriction on what you could do with regards to television back then. You think it's bad now. So Serling decided to get clever. He decided to go ahead and be like, oh, yeah, no, we're, um, it's, I'm not talking about real-life prime ministers or real-life presidents or real-life war. It's, it's fiction. It's, it's science fiction. It's, it's fantasy and aliens. Nowadays, looking back, most of the allegories they make are extremely overt, to the point of almost being completely on the nose. But that was what was kind of the, the, the unusual? I don't know what to call that. Like, even that was almost going too, too not far enough in order to make the point. And, I mean, it's worth noting that quite a few of the really good Twilight Zone episodes, in my opinion, are extremely relevant and good to watch now. Never mind 40 years ago. But Rod Serling kind of put that first crack. And uh, I want to mention three other people here. Leslie Stevens, Joseph Stefano, and Gene Roddenberry. Now, hear me out here. Um, the big one there is Stefano, really. See, Serling wanted to tell tales and get across themes and ideas and concepts through the lens of science fiction. Stefano kind of was doing the inverse of that. He was wanting to do things that in order to help kind of push the idea along, he was doing it with science fiction, but he never wanted the focus to be on the science fiction, whereas Serling kind of wanted the focus to be on the science fiction in order to coat the actual message. I know that sounds weird to express that, but let me just quote him word for word um, from Joseph Stefano directly here. My approach was to do drama and gothic horror with some kind of science fiction element because I was not a science fiction fan. There wasn't much science fiction I had seen or read that I liked very much, and in a way I was creating in a different form. If you look at my science fiction as opposed to what other writers did on the show, you'll see the difference. Speaking as someone who has watched Outer Limits, the original, as well as the original Twilight Zone, I tend to agree with that. You can see how both shows are very similar, but kind of inverted in how they approach their topic matter. Now, there was... There were also a lot of issues with uh, network involvement. To use a direct quote here, uh, this is from Jerry Soule. He had an episode which was... Here, I'll just read word for word. Screw it. I'm already reading half of this book. By the way, if I haven't said it before, I highly recommend this book for anybody interested in the behind-the-scenes for Star Trek. Fascinating stuff. It's, it's pretty much my go-to as far as uh, behind-the-scenes material. Unfortunately, it only really covers partway through DS9, so this is really TNG and TOS. But, anywho. The thing I disliked about it was you had to see the Monster of the Week right away. Now, what he is referring to is, is this is something that was mandated by network executives. My feeling was that they should have shows, some shows, where you never knew who the monster was or where it was until the very end. They didn't show the murderer in a crime story right off the bat. You have to figure out who it was, and that's half the fun. And then, I'm going to cut off here, but he references uh, The Yellow Sand, which is a specific episode that he was working on. So, what we have is the beginnings of an understanding that you can do shows with a science fiction element that are actually good, as both uh, Outer Limits and Twilight Zone were wildly popular for the time. But also, even in that, they were still being dragged down by near-constant network in, uh, interference. In fact, one of the biggest ones, this is hysterical, the, uh, the Outer Limits 
was going to be shoved into Saturday night, pushing it directly up against the Jackie Gleason show. Now, if you don't understand what that means, th they would be killing the show, is what that means. They were trying to torpedo it. I don't know why. Stefano contested that, and there was a lot of issues, and Soul had some issues with that, and just... I'm, I'm going to summarize a little bit. Like I said, I'm trying not to just read straight from the book here, but the long and the short of it is that kind of led to some very significant problems. But more importantly, from my perspective and the perspective of the video I'm doing right now, because I'm not doing a deep dive. Deep dive is 15 levels deeper than I ever go on my videos. <laughs> I call myself an analysis, but I'm like a tier 3 analysis, not a tier 17 analysis. The relevant point here is that what happened was you had these there was still opposition and most people didn't even understand the nature of how successful this kind of format was at the time. They were still trying to push it down. They were still trying to normalize it and push it back into that safe category. This opposition is, again, normal for anybody who's ever studied books or games or movies or music or plays or anything else whatsoever. This is just how it is and how it has been since these mediums have existed. I mean, look in the the play uh, the, the the making of plays from centuries ago, and you will see these exact same cycles repeated there. Anywho, this led led to the Green Hand. This was going to be Theodore Sturgeon, Richard Matheson, George Clayton Johnson, and uh, Jerry Soule. They got together and they're like, "Look, let's push some science fiction and fantasy shows." So they pushed quite a few. None of them were bought. Now, this is actually really strange, but I'm mentioning this for a reason. I swear I'm building up to something here. They were they pitched all of these show ideas, and quite a few of these would actually eventually become shows, including The Six Million Dollar Man and The Quester Tapes, which would come out later as well. But at the time, all of the things that the Greens put out, the Green Hand put out, none of them were... nobody bit on any of them. None of the shows that were pitched were taken. I want to mention that from interviews, the people who were taking the pitches, taking the pitch meetings, actually liked the shows, but they still didn't bite on them. The reason I consider this so important is to get to luck point number two for Star Trek. People had already been laying sand down on the ground in order to help firm it up for when we could actually put some brick on there, for we could firm it up so we could actually build something on top of that. Because this is a swamp. And it, it and the, the fortress sank into the swamp. I'm just going to make a reference here. We're moving, we're moving. But the way I've always mentally pictured this is you need the very beginnings of something to have the, the outer edges of something that can allow for something to be put on top of that, for something to put on top of that, for you to build something, right? It's a slow process. Uh, and discussing the Disney Renaissance, which I did last year, is an excellent example of what I'm talking about. You know, the, the Little Mermaid didn't just... It wasn't just someone like, ha-ha, let's do this. There were several, several, several layers before that. And this is my point. Between Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, several other shows, which I haven't mentioned here, and, of course, The Green Hand, sand and maybe a few rocks and pebbles had been laid down on the swamp so that someone could come by and build on it. Now... This then leads us, of course, to Roddenberry. Now, I've mentioned before, Roddenberry was, was well involved with quite a few aspects of television before. He did stuff on Dr. Kildare, Naked City, Mr. District Eternity, and Highway Patrol. Also, Have Gun, Will Travel. Sounds like one of the three categories from earlier, doesn't it? 
But he got involved in this stuff, and he worked with a lot of the people who would end up being on the show, including DeForest Kelly and, of course, Nimoy. And as he was pushing through this stuff, he really wanted to do something. He really wanted to do this. If I could just quote him word for word, if I might be so bold. Writing for television audience does the same thing as the great sculptors and painters and painters and composers also do. What you do is say to the world, hey, these are things as I see it. These are my comments. This is how I see the world. And you do this with utter selfishness, which is what an artist should always do. All artists should be selfish and say, this is the way I see it. And under the voice should say, screw you. If you want yours, you can do it too. No comment. Make of that, make of that quote what you want. But I mention that because it helps to emphasize the mentality Rob Roddenberry had when he was making Star Trek. He really wanted to do this. And I have flung a lot of dirt at Roddenberry, and I don't apologize for that. But I will always give him that pit of credit. This is my opinion here. The man really did give a damn about Star Trek from, from the very beginning, from before it was even called Star Trek. And he really wanted to push this out. It, it, again, this this book is filled with interviews of him about how uh, he he came into the old Amazing and Astounding magazines where they used to have science fiction tales in them, and you know just uh, and this is from when he was eleven, and how he was digging into this kind of thing and how he loved what Serling was doing. Um, he also loved now this is actually another important point here Gulliver's Travels. Now you're probably thinking, what the hell does Gulliver's Travels have to do with anything? The same thing that Serling was doing over in Twilight Zone. Jonathan Swift was using, it is my belief, I shouldn't say that because I haven't studied Gulliver's Travel since I was in high school, it is my belief that Jonathan Swift was using Gulliver's Travels as a way to comment on modern society about the corruption of government and various other issues therewith. And he did it because they were these little people and, and nobody would comment on it, right? So, again, to use a direct quote from Ronberry here, it seemed to me that perhaps if I wanted to talk about sex, religion, politics, and make some comments about Vietnam, remember that was still a fairly modern and re relevant issue, that if I had similar in situations involving these subjects happening on other planets to little green people, indeed it might get by, and it did. So, we can see how, again, Roddenberry was building on the sand and uh, building blocks that other people had laid down in order to make this happen. This then led to something amusing. In 1963, he put together his initial thoughts for the series. He was working on The Lieutenant at the time. Now, the reason I find this interesting is the woman he reached out to in order to, to get her thoughts on it was Dorothy Fontana, his secretary at the time. I sure hope at least some of you know who D.C. Fontana is. Anywho, so he asked her to read it, and by most accounts, she was the first person he went to with Star Trek, what would eventually become Star Trek. And it's like, okay, how do we do this? What do we do this? According to her, she had one question. Who's going to play Mr. Spock? And he, of course, had already worked with Leonard Nimoy, and so had she. So that was their first pick for this. And it's ironic for reasons we'll get into in a minute. So they jotted it down, and I'm just going to fast forward through this. They started working on the cage, and we'll talk a little bit more about the cage later when we actually cover it, because for the record, that will be the first episode we're covering. But the problem was they were having severe issues actually dealing with it. So one of the biggest things that Roddenberry pushed into his show was the concept of parallel worlds. Now, <laughs> this is almost hysterical from a modern perspective, but at the time, remember, this is still relatively new into science fiction being a regular thing when it comes to fictional media. 
And is there was constant pushback and constant influence and constant messing with everything, right? As I've already demonstrated. So the parallel worlds idea accomplished two things. Number one, it ensured that they could use sets that already existed, practical sets and practical... It, it's the same general thing that they use the holodeck for that I've already talked about over in TNG. The other thing is that it would make the show more believable for people. Now, it's worth noting that Roddenberry himself did not seem to agree with this concept. Uh, in fact, there's a line here about Roddenberry wanting to put his head through a wall in frustration. Because one of the biggest pushbacks he constantly got was that the show was too cerebral. Now, you've probably heard that phrase before, especially with regards to Star Trek. It's worth noting that when the phrase is used, it's sometimes misaligned. So allow me to explain that a little bit. They, don't, they didn't mean that it was too high, you know, super ridiculous, oh my god, you know, having to have an IQ of 7 billion to properly appreciate kind of a thing. What they meant was the shows were intended to make the audience think. Now that is, of course, a summary of the idea, but that is the concept. They were more interested in action, which is the kind of thing that you can sit back and just turn off your brain and enjoy, which was perceived as the good way to do storytelling at the time, especially when it comes to television, because playing it safe. So, one of the biggest uh, points, there were two, about the whole too cerebral thing, it was believed that audiences, I can't even believe this, it was believed that audiences couldn't actually understand the concept of other worlds and extraterrestrials. Right. This became a huge sticking point. So, they went together to make the cage, they pitched the cage, and something incredibly weird happened. This is luck point number three, if you're paying attention. They said no, but try again. Now, that is anonymously unusual. I, I can't even think of another show that had that kind of a shot, especially at this point in history, when it came to television. The fact that they said no, but we'll give you another shot at it, is absolutely insane. And to be honest, I'm not even 100% sure why they did that. Because it's just... Why? Now, it's also worth noting that the network executives did push them to make the most difficult version of the pilot that they possibly could, which ended up being the cage. Uh, to use a direct quote here, um, uh, there were four types of shows they could do. Gunsmoke, Wagon Train, and two Outer Planet type shows. They picked the Outer Planet type show because they said it would be the hardest to do, and therefore kind of show what they could actually accomplish. So they sat down, they did it, and they got Jeffrey Hunter. Talk about him in a second. And Jeffrey Hunter, you know, pushed it forth, and in my opinion did a good job of Pike, although we'll talk about that next week when we cover uh, The Cage. They got Majel Barrett involved, they got Nimoy involved, all sorts of people. And they're like, all right, we got this, let's do it. Uh, so, no. <laughs> now, here it is. This, this is just hysterical. They wanted to axe Spock. They wanted, when they were said, okay, go ahead and bring it back, but get rid of Spock. Now, um, here it is. I'm sorry, I was, I was looking for a specific quote. Here it is. This is actually a quote from uh, uh, Roddenberry, it looks like. Sorry. It doesn't always quote things here, which is kind of irritating. We had what they call the childish concept, 
an alien with pointy ears from another planet. People in those days were not talking about life forms from other worlds. It was generally assumed by most sensible people that this is the place where life occurred and probably nowhere else. Ironically, we're still arguing that to this day, but the point is the very idea of having aliens at all was nonsense. Space travel was nonsense, and so forth and so on. So they were like, eh, okay, we'll consider it, but t t tell you what, tell you what. Go ahead and make another attempt. <laughs> Oscar Katz, who was one of the executives involved, this is the other quote I was looking for, was asked, why'd you turn it down? And he said, we can't sell it. It's too atypical. But you did you did a good job of it. And because of that, we're going to give you an order for a second pilot next season. So NBC went ahead and did that, and there were several suggestions they made. Uh, number one was axed, obviously, because you can't have a woman on the bridge. That's nonsense. <sighs> and several other things that I'm not going to cover right here. But there is one big one. They wanted to kick Spock off. And I already mentioned that. They wanted to get rid of Spock. Um... <laughs> This is actually interesting. Roddenberry really dug his heels in on this one. Obviously, history has proven Roddenberry right on this, but it's worth noting that at the time, he was doing the insane thing. He was actually working very hard to ensure that his show would not go live. He had already failed to make his first pitch, and he was being given an unheard-of second pitch, and he was fighting with the executives about their mandates for that second pitch. Think about that for a second. Consider that praise or insanity or whatever you want to call it, but that is some gumption. Eventually, they did decide to go ahead and keep Spock in, and I quote, in the background. Either way, they got together for where no man has gone before. Jeffrey Hunter bowed out, which is actually kind of unfortunate. To my knowledge, we don't know the specific reason why. I, I, there's actually several quotes here. Uh, one is from Oscar Katz. That's the aforementioned executive. One of, is from Ronberry. Both of them say the same thing. Either Hunter or his wife, and they're not sure which, decided they didn't like the show and didn't want to do science fiction in general. So they axed the idea. To this day, we don't actually know the specifics, and we probably never will. But instead, they decided to get someone else. Now, this is... Also kind of interesting, and probably luck point number four at this point. So there's this Canadian guy. Walks up going, hey! And they decided to go ahead and try and cast him in the maid lead. He had already been in The World of Susie Wong, A Short in the Dark, A Shot in the Dark, excuse me, Brothers Kar uh, Karamazov, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, For the People, Alexander. Yes, I'm of course referring to William Shatner. Now... This is going to sound strange, because at the time, Shatner was expensive. Remember, almost everyone involved in the original series were not new. They were not fresh actors who could be paid less, or fresh directors or fresh writers who didn't have experience. This was mostly a, a well-honed team, and most of the people already knew their craft. Now, we can make fun of Shatner's acting talents both up and down, but the fact of the matter was, he was a successful actor at the time, and he commanded quite a salary. And in fact, that's actually a comment in here, is the fact that you know he's, he's going to be expensive. But he was considering saying no, except for one thing. The second pilot. According to Shatner, the peculiar circumstance of having a first pilot and a second pilot is what made him decide to go ahead and go for it. 
once again, we can see how the building blocks just kind of start building up more and more in order to uh, allow for the creation of this show. This then led to a whole bunch of concepts. If you ever wondered why uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before is so much more action-y than, you know, fairly other, uh, than The Cage, or even other episodes of TOS in general, it was because they wanted to fulfill that action mandate. It was one of the things that NBC was really pushing for. One way or another, they finally pushed it out. Uh, Goldstone, who was directing it, was involved, and the second pilot had some great concepts, and blah, 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 blah. Um, I, I could go over some of the specifics here, but the long and the short of it is with, and, and God, there's just page and page and page and page of this. It's just, like I said, there's so much information here. But the key part here is where No Man Has Gone Before was sufficiently successful in both testing and screening that they were like, okay, we'll green light you a bit. And that's the exact moment they decided to pounce and really start push the envelope. That's when they got a Hura on the bridge. That's when they got a Russian on the bridge. I remind you of when this was happening. Uh, you know, it, this is the kind of stuff, this is when they were really pushing for those things to be a thing. Granted, with the advantage of hindsight, Uhura is not exactly a fantastic role. And, of course, uh, Chekhov wouldn't even join the show for several, several episodes. But this is when, from a development perspective, they were like, all right, let's push the boundaries. Let's push the limits. As we will talk about in the future, it is also very likely that this pushing of limits was a contributory factor to why the show was eventually axed after season two was, or during season two's production. Which, if you're not paying attention, uh, see, two seasons of a show was really unusual back then. Even a show that was just considered, like, average, that was within the safe zone, had a minimum of four seasons. So TOS getting only three, and uh, we, we'll talk about the third season when we get there, was pretty unusual and said a lot for how much was going on behind the scenes trying to bring this show down. All of this leads to the miracle, Star Trek. A lighthearted show about life in space. Now, I love Star Trek. I, I, that's probably <laughs> obvious. But having given some of a behind-the-scenes perspective, if you'll forgive me, and if you're still watching this video for whatever reason, I'd like to give a bit of a personal perspective, as I am wont to do. I was first introduced to Star Trek, in general, with an episode from TOS called Spectre of the Gun. I'm actually pretty sure I've referenced this before somewhere. It scared the crap out of me. Because the first thing I saw was these weird aliens showing up and they're shooting people. And I was just like, what the heck is going on? And so when Encounter at Farpoint came around and Mum was really excited to see it, I was just kind of like, eh, okay, I'll watch it because now I can spend time with my mother that way. Because I didn't get a lot of time with my mom. Because she worked a lot. Probably sounds familiar. Anyways. But this then led to me pushing away from TOS for quite some time. Uh... I'm trying to think of the exact year. I could probably pinpoint it if you give me a second to think on it. It would have been about 90 or 91-ish. It was... TNG had already kind of been doing its thing, and I was already way into TNG and very much enjoying it, and obviously the movies, which by this point had, you know, I'd, I'd already been exposed to. So, Mum was like, you know what? I really want to do a marathon watch of... No, it, it wouldn't have been 91, would it? I just realized the exact... Hang on, I figured out... I can figure out the exact year. Give me a second. <laughs> Give me one second. You can tell I prep for these so much. Star Trek 25th Anniversary. 
That's what it was. No, not the game. The concept. <laughs> uh, something other than the game. Oh, come on! Well, whatever. It was 92. The game came out in 92, which means the 21st anniversary is probably 92, so that's when we're doing it. Some of you may or may not remember this. They did a whole lead-up thing uh, helping to advertise for Undiscovered Country, which I was extremely excited for at that point in time. And they had this lead-up to that, which I actually still have the VHS tapes, to, VHS tapes to this day of the top 10 TOS episodes leading up to that. Anybody remember that? I'm actually curious if anyone remembers that event. And they would cut back and forth to some behind-the-scenes things with, with Shatner and with Kelly, and they would have some, uh, you know, Nicholas Meyer would show up for some discussions and blah, blah, blah. And it was just this whole celebration special that was on TV. And I, like I said, we recorded because we had the great luxury of having a VCR at the time. God, it's really raining. Apologies for the noise. So as we're going through this, you know, I started watching the TOS episodes. And the first one was Balance of Terror. And I loved Balance of Terror. It just, it hooked me immediately for reasons that I probably don't even have to explain, but we'll talk about when we get there. And from that, I was just like, oh my god, TOS is actually good. We didn't call it TOS at the time. Star Trek was actually good? Holy crap. Who knew? So I was talking about this to my mom, and she got really excited about the idea. And so in the direct wake of that anniversary thing, we went out and rented all of the episodes at the local rental store of TOS and just went through the whole series side by side. It took several weeks to get through, obviously, because, I mean, you don't have a lot of time to hang out when you have full-time school and she has full-time work, but the fact of the matter remains. And that was how TOS came into my existence. And I've rewatched TOS pretty much all the way through three or four times for the most part. Um, there's obviously individual episodes I've rewatched far more than that. I have referenced the VHS concept, you know, the VHS list over on TNG and DS9. I had a VHS list for TOS as well. And I will be pointing out episodes as we go that were originally on that list. It'll probably be pretty obvious, because it's the ones that most people tend to like. I want to say one final thing, though. Well, I obviously, if, if the last however many minutes of me yammering on here doesn't get across the point, I obviously have a great love of Star Trek and TOS in particular. But it's not sacred to me. And I want to point that out because I know that there are some Star Trek fans for whom it is untouchable. You, you can't make fun of it, you can't uh, point out its flaws, you can't do anything like that. I am not one of those people, and I want to be extremely upfront about that. I will be doing the same thing I always do for anything I cover. Obviously, this will not be a review, so there'll be no pluses and minuses. But other than that, this will be my usual approach. Discussion, analysis, and hopefully some cool comments in the YouTube comments below. So with that little warning out of the way, I guess it's time to go ahead and get started with The Cage. I hope to see you there next week, guys.